Parshas Vayeshev has the story of the Eshes Potiphar, the wife of Potiphar, her accusation, her false accusation of rape against Yosef. This is one of the great, he said, she said, stories in history. This is something that legal systems, culture is still plagued with today. How do we untangle cases where someone accuses someone else of assault, of rape like this, even more so than other crimes and other than other cases in law, accusations of rape are particularly problematic because the events, the events involved in a rape accusation typically take place in private, where there are not witnesses around. And even if you establish that an incident actually occurred, we still have to figure out the question of consent, even if you can prove physical evidence or otherwise that there was that there was sexual activity, we still have to figure out whether it was consensual or not. So this is a problem that every legal system has to grapple with, and the Torah as well has to grapple with the system. Later in our talk, we'll discuss some halakhic perspectives on this question. But we'll begin by discussing the episode in our Pasha. The, the story in the Pasha, you read the Psukim on their own, seems like a pretty simple and straightforward story. She made an accusation, she lied, she made up a story, he denied it, there was no proof, there was no witnesses. Yosef's master, Potiphar, his, Potiphar's wife's husband, threw him in jail, presumably because he believed the story. As we'll see, though, there is a surprising amount of, of detail and of color added to the story by the Midrashim and by the Rishonim. They introduce all kinds of other elements of, of evidence, forensic evidence, physical evidence, evidence from clothing, evidence from bodily fluids or fake bodily fluids, uh, testimony, character, character assessment. They make the story much more interesting and much richer than it might seem at first blush. In general, a number of Midrashim and Rishonim assume that even though you read the Psirkim, it sounds like Potiphar believed his wife. It says that when he heard his wife's accusation, the Pasuk says she told him, When he heard his wife's report of the things Yosef did to her, he was furious, he was enraged. and He threw him in jail. certainly sounds like he believed her. A number of Midrashim and Rishonim, however, assume that on the contrary. If he actually believed her, he would have killed Yosef. This is not the United States, where, where you go to jail, and even if you're on death row, you stay there for 20 years. Had he actually believed her, he would have uh, off with Yosef's head immediately. The fact that he did not kill him indicates that he was not so sure she was telling the truth, or as we'll see, according to some explanations, he even knew he was innocent. He threw him in jail anyway. Um, so, as I said, this is the idea that we find in various Midrashim and a number of Rishonim, Bereshus Rabbah, Midrash Rabbah. It says Yosef, that Potiphar threw Yosef in jail. I know that you're innocent. And the reason I'm throwing you in jail, he doesn't say why he knew he was innocent, but it says, I know you're innocent. Nevertheless, I'm throwing you in jail. Why? He didn't want, to, uh, he didn't want people to, to, to say that, oh, his wife is uh, promiscuous and the kids, therefore, are not his kids. He didn't want uh, the scandal getting out, which would cast aspersions on his lineage. A little bit cynical, not exactly fair to Yosef. But he told Yosef, I have to do this. I have no choice to preserve my family's reputation. I have to throw you in jail. But the, I know you're innocent. The Yifei Tawar, one of the early commentaries from the 16th century on the Midrash Rabbah, 
He says, how did the Midrash know that Potiphar knew he was innocent? As we said, otherwise he would have killed him, he says. What, what, jail wouldn't have been enough. Even though the Pasuk says, Vayicharapo, that, that, that Potiphar was furious, that means his initial reaction, he heard her story, his first reaction was, that's terrible, that, that's outrageous. However, after he thought about it more carefully, he says, not really, he said. He, he, he said, I, I know she's lying. First of all, he says, how did he know he was, he was lying? First of all, he says he knew Yosef was a man of great integrity. He trusted him with all his household affairs because Yosef had demonstrated his integrity. Also, his piety, his kedusha, that, he, that it, says that the, it, it says that the reason he trusted him, the, the psukim say, that the reason he trusted him was because, was because, the Yara Donov, Ki Hashem Ito, he saw that, uh, he, he saw that Hashem was with him, so, Kipshutu, that means he saw Hashem smiled on Yosef, he helped Yosef, but Rashi brings a midrash, Tanchuma, it was the opposite, Shem Shemayim Shagur Bafiv, Hashem Ito means he was with Hashem, that Hashem was with him, means verbally, he always spoke about Hashem. So he knew Yosef was a pious man, an honest man, who would never do such a thing, that, uh, and therefore, V'ech Yase Ha'gidol Hazos. How would he do such a terrible thing? I mean, unfortunately, we know of cases of people who had reputations for great piety and for great uh, honesty who were shown to be criminals and uh, licentious people. Uh, the human beings are capable of hypocrisy and of uh, falsehood and so on. It's not impossible, but the Yifetar explains the Midrash that Potiphar, even after his wife's accusation, he still trusted his knowledge of Yosef's character. He was not wrong about Yosef. He still believed Yosef was... Maybe he knew something about his wife's character as well, that she was not so trustworthy. He doesn't say that. I don't know. I'll call upon him. He, he didn't really believe that Yosef was that Yosef was guilty. Furthermore, he brings another Midrash, Midrash Avkir. He brings a Midrash that says that, indeed, he was... Uh, the Midrash says he actually did believe his wife initially and was ready to kill Yosef. However, Asnas... Asnas, his daughter, Asnas came to him secretly and told him the truth. She said, I, I know what actually happened. It's, it's mommy's fault. I don't know if she was... Uh, that it's, uh, she's the one, she's the one who's, uh, who's, who's, who's lying here. HaKarosh Baruch Hu said, uh, in the schar for this... Uh, for, for this... Uh, for, for saving Yosef, the schar of that was that the, the shvatim that, that Yosef is destined to have, that I'm destined to produce from Yosef, Ephraim and Manasseh, they will be via you, meaning that's what we find later. And in uh, next week's parasha, she was she actually married Yosef eventually, and she had a and Menasha. So now we have two explanations of why Potiphar didn't execute Yosef, why he didn't trust his wife, either because character he knew Yosef's character would was not consistent with this behavior. B he had a witness, he had a third party witness who said Yosef's telling the truth and she's lying. Okay. Bukharshar, Rabbi Yosef Bukharshar is one of the great Balai Hapshat in the Rishonim, Talmud of Rabbeinu Tam. He was one of the, the he's probably the, the, the along with Rashbam, he, he's one of the outstanding Balai Hapshat of the Ashkenazic Rishonim. He says, Potiphar imprisoned Yosef. He says he did not kill him. He wasn't liable for the death penalty. Why? First of all, he says, she simply had no proof. Forget the question of whether he had reason to believe Yosef, character or whatever. She simply had no proof, even if it's just her word against his word, and there's no reason to believe one or the other. How can you imprison a man without proof? Today, certainly, we have due process, and we have you know, standards of guilt. You have to be, you have to be, uh, the evidence has to, has to convince you of guilt beyond a, uh, that, that beyond a reasonable doubt. 
I don't know if Mitzrayim was such a progressive legal system, but it, I don't know if it says more about Bukhar Shar's understanding of the law or Potiphar's understanding of the law, but the way Bukhar Shar explains it, even if there was no reason to believe Yosef over her, you can't kill somebody simply because of an accusation without proof. How can you kill him? She had no witnesses. And if she says that he attempted rape against her, he'll say that she attempted to force him. I mean, it wouldn't really have been rape. She attempted to pressure him and so on. But he denies it. He has a totally different version of the story. Furthermore, Bukhar Shar adds another idea. Up till now, we've been discussing the, the, the idea that he didn't execute Yosef because he didn't believe his wife. Bukhar Shar adds, even if she's telling the truth, even if he did believe, even if he did believe her, it was attempted rape. It was not actual rape. According to her story, she fought him off. It says that she, uh, she, she, she says he didn't succeed. Just like in... So in, in modern American law, attempted murder, attempted crimes are often crimes in and of themselves. In halacha, we always point out, this is one area where halacha diverges from modern, modern Western law. Attempted crimes are typically not crimes. Attempted murder is not a crime. I mean, it, you know, Shem will punish you, perhaps, but there's no punishment in based in for an attempt at murder, attempted theft. Theft is no punishment, period, generally, even if we do commit the theft, you have to just give the money back. But in general, if a person attempts to do an Avera and doesn't do it, there is a Gemara that says if a person is niskaving lechel besar chazir, he needs a kapara. But in terms of the punishments of based in, the, the formal punishments, there's generally no punishment for an attempt to commit a crime. Says the Bukhar Shar, that's how the Egyptian legal system worked as well, that an attempted rape is not a crime, not punishable, not punishable by death at least, and therefore he threw Yosef in jail. It could be that attempted rape was enough to, to qualify for jail, to be eligible for jail, if not the death penalty. According to his first shot, he didn't have proof, so I'm, again, I'm not sure in the modern legal system, if you don't have proof, not only can't we kill you, we can't even imprison you. Even that has a standard of uh, beyond a reasonable doubt to convict uh, and, and throw you in jail. Maybe Mitzrayim wasn't so progressive. Maybe they could jail you if they, even without Aiden, but they couldn't execute you without Aiden, Bukhar Shar thinks. I'll call upon him, so Bukhar Shar is adding a third point. Besides the, besides the idea that he may have had faith in Yosef's character, besides the, the idea that there was uh, a witness testifying in Yosef's favor. Furthermore, she simply had no proof, even absent any, any reason to believe Yosef. She simply had no proof. And a number of other Rishonim follow Bukhar Shar and say the same thing. They're all bag. He put him in jail as punishment. He wasn't guilty of the same two reasons. He wasn't guilty of... Uh, he, was, he wasn't liable for the death penalty, first of all, because even according to Aishas Potiphar's allegation, he didn't actually commit the crime, he didn't succeed in his rape. And also he says, Potiphar was misopic, Potiphar didn't know who was telling the truth, his wife or Yosef. Chizkuni, lohaya ben maves, ki there were no witnesses, but he jailed him anyway. So this is the third reason why, he, we have a third and a fourth reason why he did not jail him. The first is... His character was uh, inconsistent with doing this. There was testimony in his favor. In addition, she had no proof. And furthermore, even if he did attempt rape, he didn't do an actual rape, so he wasn't guilty, he wasn't liable for the death penalty. Then the Chizkuni brings a Midrash, another Midrash. We, we saw that the, the so far we have Rashis Rabbah, who just says, Potiphar knew he wasn't guilty, didn't explain why. We have the Midrash Avkir that Yifetar brings, that Osnath testified in Yosef's favor. The Chizkuni brings a different Midrash. Nimsa Ba'agada, we have a different Midrash, that Gavriel appeared before the Melech, before Potiphar, before Paro, I guess, and says, I have, you know, we have, he said, she said, I have a way to resolve the question of who's telling the truth. Let's look at their clothing. If 
his clothing is ripped, that means that he attacked her, and she fought back and clawed at him and tore his clothing. If her clothing is ripped, if her clothing is ripped, I'm sorry, the, 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 other, the, the other way around. If, uh, if her clothing is ripped, that means Yosef attacked her and tore off her clothing and, and damaged her clothing. If his clothing is ripped, that means that, like what actually happened, she grabbed him and he abandoned his clothing. The circum said, circum don't say anything about ripping. The circum just say he abandoned his, clo- his clothing in her, in her hands, but it also could have gotten torn. She grabbed his jacket and he ran out and tore his clothing. So if his clothing is ripped, that means he's telling the truth. She attacked him and he tried to run away. If her clothing is ripped, it means he attacked her. They, they investigated the clothing, and it turned out that Yosef's clothing was ripped, like the circum say, that, that, that she grabbed his clothing and he ran off. Therefore, he says, they did, not, they did not rule him liable for the death penalty. However, so why was he jailed? Why wasn't he just completely exonerated? Because, again, it would have been embarrassing for Aishas Potiphar to testify that, that she was uh, she was a zona. So it, it would have been uh, embarrassing, it would have been humiliating for her, so Potiphar had to save face for his wife, and he had to jail Yosef. However, he says, the, those who knew the truth, Potiphar himself understood that she was the guilty party, Yosef was innocent. And then, then the Chizkuni adds a point that a number of Midrashim make as well, which we, as we'll see, that who was the one who issued this ruling? It was Gabriel who came up with the idea, but who actually ultimately accepted it and did the investigation and, and, and signed off on this. It was the Kohane Mitzrayim, though it was some kind of ecclesiastical court. It was the priests of Egypt. And that's why, in a couple of parashas later, in the end of parashas Ba'igash, where it, it describes how the famine turned out, it says that everyone, everyone in Egypt, they spent all their money buying grain from, the, from, from Paro, and then they, they had no money, so they, had to, they, they, they gave all their cash and all their cattle, and they said, well, you'll take ourselves and our property, we'll become serfs to the crown. So, so Paro ended up owning all the property in Egypt, all the personal property, all the cattle, all the, all the cash, all the, all the real estate, except it says, Rak at Masakarnim Lo Kana. He didn't buy, Paro didn't wind up acquiring the, the land of the priest. So can say over there. So can say in the end of the Pasha, the end of Pasha's Vaigash, it says, Rak at Masakarnim Lo Vadam Lo Paro, that he didn't get the, the land of the Kohanim. Because they had special treatment, they had preferential treatment. So the reason is, the Chizkuni says, the Midrash says, the reason is because they were the ones who were responsible for maybe not totally exonerating, but at least saving Yosef from the death penalty. And therefore, Yosef repaid the favor years later by giving them preferential treatment during the famine. Okay, there are other variations of this Midrash as well that it was a question of forensic evidence and the Kohanim were the ones who ruled in Yosef's favor, at least partially. The Riva, another one in the Balitosis, the Riva says that Midrash, he also brings a Midrash, he says that the reason the Kohanim, he was favorable to the Kohanim was because Hakar Zatov, for their fair treatment of him earlier. The Riva is an interesting twist. The, the Chizkuni seems to say, everyone else seems to say that, that, that this, this, this question, this investigation happened right now when, when, when she accused him of rape. The, the Riva says this happened years later when, when they wanted to make him king. In the beginning of Pasha's Miketz, where he interprets the dreams for Paro, they wanted to make him king. There were objections. He had to go through uh, some kind of confirmation hearing like we do today. And people said, He's an adulterer. He, he betrayed his master. He was Mizana with his wife. How can we appoint? Uh, we had this recently with the Supreme Court justice. How can we appoint someone who, was, uh, who has bad behavior? 
Again, it was years in the past. This was a number of years earlier. But uh, it, it's not actually clear. It's not actually so clear how, you, how long Yosef was in jail. We know that Parshas Vayeshev, this week's Parsha begins, it says that Yosef was 17 years old when the Parsha begins. Second passage in the Parsha, Ela Toledos Yaakov, Yosef, Ben Shmas, Reishana. He was 17 years old. He was a shepherd with his brothers. And so we know he was 17 when Parshas Vayeshev begins. And when he was fetched from jail to interpret Paro's dream in the beginning of Parshas Miketz, it says... So it says, it's, uh, it, 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 it says about Yosef, it says that Yosef was 30 years old when he stood before that he, he was, Yosef ben Shloshim Shanab, Amdolaf Mefaro, Melech Mitzrayim. The events in the beginning of Pashat Miketz, he was 30 years old. So 13 years passed from the beginning of Pashat Vayeshev until the beginning of Pashat Miketz. How many of those years was Yosef in jail? So we don't know. He was, he, was, he, he was a shepherd. The story of the dreams, he went out to look after his brothers. Yaakov sent him to, to check on his brothers. He was sold into slavery. Potiphar bought him. He worked in Potiphar's house for some unspecified period of time. And then he had the, the unfortunate run-in with Aishas Potiphar. And then he went to jail. And he was in jail for some number of years, for some time. Then he had the, the episode with the Sarah Mashman, the Sarah Ha'ofim, the end of the parsha, the, the butler and the baker. And he, and, and he said, you're going to be, he told the Sarah Mashman, you're going to get out, please mention me to Paro. It says, below Zachar Sarah Mashman, he did not remember to Paro. And the next, next parsha begins, it was two years later when Paro had his dreams and Yosef got out of jail. So how long was he in jail? At least two years. Sometime more than that. We don't know. Was he, was he sold down to Mitzrayim immediately after when he was 17? Did any time pass between the beginning of the parasha and that? Even if no time passed, how long was he in base, in base Potiphar before, uh, before, the, before the whole story started that got him thrown in jail? So we don't actually know, we don't actually know for a fact how long he was... Uh, that, that we, we, we don't actually know how long he was in jail. There is a... There is a midrash that says that he was in jail for twelve years. That 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 he was actually in jail for uh, almost almost the entire time. From he 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 wound up, he wound up in jail. The Sefer Yasher, a midrash, the medieval a medieval work, a Renaissance work, a midrash. Not clear exactly when it was written. Says that he was in jail for twelve years. The but anyway, he was in jail for a long time, according to the Midrash, at least. So, for some reason, at his criminal trial, he was thrown in jail. But then, years later, when he was going to be, when he was 30, when he was going to be appointed viceroy to Egypt, there was some objected at his confirmation hearing and said, and said that, how could this person is not suitable to be the viceroy? He's someone who did the Savera with uh, Aisha Sadonov. So the Riva says, the priest said, let's investigate. This didn't come up at the trial, apparently, but they said, let's go... Let's go find, his, find, find the clothing. Today we would worry about the chain of custody of the evidence. I'm not sure how secure the evidence locker was. They stored, again, it was years later. They kept his clothing around. I guess if, it was in, if he was on trial, they kept all the evidence in, uh, stored in the evidence locker. So they, the, the priest said, let's go j- check his clothing and we'll, we'll see how it's torn. So the Chizkuni's version was, the Midrash, the Midrash in the Chizkuni was, let's see if it's her clothing or his clothing. The way the Riva brings it, it was his clothing they were investigating. Let's see how it's torn. If it's torn from the back, that means that's what actually happened, that Yosef was running away. She grabbed him from behind, and she grabbed the back of his clothing and tore the back of his clothing. 
and, and, and she, was the, she was the aggressor and he was the innocent party. But if the front of his clothing is torn, that means he tried to force himself upon her and she fought back and clawed at him and she tore the front of his clothing. So you would think, that, so, so, so what, what do they find? What actually happened? You would think, well, obviously the Pesuk can make it clear that, that he was innocent. You'd think they would have found the back was torn. Says the Riva, another incredible twist. He says, yes, they found that the back of the garment was torn. That's only because Malach Gavriel, he figures into this Midrash as well, Malach Gavriel came and tampered with the evidence. He, uh, he actually went into the evidence locker and tampered with the evidence. He says, why? Why, why, was, why, why did he have to do that? Because the, ev- the, the clothing was actually torn in the front. It was actually torn. Why would that happen? Because, it's, because there's a famous Machlokas in the Gemara, whether Yosef actually was on the verge of sinning or not. One opinion says he was never planning. It says, One opinion says Malachto means his legitimate work, his, his accounts, his, his regular work as the steward of, of Potiphar's house. There's another sheet that says, Malachto is a euphemism for his nus. He was on the verge of giving in to his evil inclination until... Until he saw Aviv, he had an image of his of, of his father, and he and he turned back. So, according to that opinion, he actually was on the verge of sitting with her, and his garment was actually torn in the front. And Gabriel had to tamper with the evidence. I don't really understand the midrash like this. Even if even if he was on the verge of sinning, that's what she wanted. She was cooperating with her. So why would his why would his clothing have been torn? So I, you know, either way, I don't know why his clothing would have been torn in the front. Also, I don't know who, you know, who, who, who told the Midrash to introduce this uh, particularly sensational detail that there had to be evidence tampering going on. Man, why, why can't we just say that the, the tearing of the clothing didn't happen until afterwards, after he had already decided he wasn't going to sin. Even if he was initially on the verge of sinning, he saw the image of his father, he changed his mind. It's explicit in the Psukim. It's, it's, it's explicit in the Psukim that at some point he, uh, that at some point he ran away and, and her grabbing the clothing happened after that. So even if we assume that at an earlier, a moment earlier, he was on the verge of sinning, but the, the tearing of the clothing happened after he already decided to abandon the sin and flee. And then the clothing would have been torn in the back. So I don't know why on earth the Midrash assumes that the clothing was torn in the front and there had to be tampering with the evidence. But okay, this is how the Midrash brings it, that, that again, it was the priest involved in the investigation. It was also Malik Avril involved in a slightly different capacity than previously. But both these midrashim have the same general motifs that the, it was the priests who were instrumental in at least partially exonerating Yosef. They did so based on forensic investigation of the, of the clothing, either his clothing or her clothing or both, either at the time of the accusation against him or years later when he stood before Paro. And Malach Gavriel was also involved. Either he proposed doing this investigation or he actually tampered with the evidence. But a lot, of, a lot of interesting differences, but the general idea is similar that Yosef was at least partially exonerated, not just based on his sterling character, not based on tes- testimony that corroborated his account, not simply because there was no evidence, because there was actual evidence supporting Yosef and uh, against the, the version of Aisha's Potiphar. The Moshe of Zikadim, another work of the Balitosis, also he, he focuses on the motifs we've been saying that why, that, uh, why didn't he kill him? So one shot he brings is because, is because again, he knew Yosef was a successful and airlock person, and he says, yeah, it's a, it, it's, a, it's, it's, you know, it's a good chance she's lying. Why did he jail him if he believed he, if he, she was lying, either just out of respect for his wife, he didn't want to, uh, he didn't want to accuse his wife totally of being uh, a Zona, or he has another shot, uh, kind of a cynical shot, he says, he says, Yosef really, his Potiphar really did believe did believe his wife, that Yosef had attempted to, to assault his wife. Had he put Yosef, had he killed Yosef, that would have somehow 
made the, the story even more well-known. Everyone would have known that, that his wife was, was almost the victim of a rape. Somehow, by only jailing him, the, the story got off the front pages, it, it, and somehow that, he seems to be saying that resulted in less of a humiliation for his wife. Even though he believed the story, he thought he could uh, kind of sweep it under the rug or keep it quiet if he would... I guess even though she was the innocent party, according to her version of the story, still it was an embarrassing story that she was uh, almost, uh, almost raped by Yosef. Somehow he felt he could, uh, he could, he could, he could limit the, he could, he could limit the, or it could be he means even in this trap that he didn't really believe her, and and and, and that somehow killing Yosef would have, I don't know, would, would have caused people to realize that that, that she that she was the guilty party. I'm not sure what he means, but anyway, he also brings similar shot to him that he did not. His first shot sounds like he did believe Yosef, but his second shot, he did not really believe Yosef, and uh, he, he he believed Yosef. He did not really believe that he was guilty, and and he only put him in jail out of uh, respect for his wife. Now we mentioned we mentioned earlier that the we mentioned the Chizkuni's midrash that there was for, and also the similar version of the of the Riva. The Riva and the Chizkuni mentioned a midrash that there was some kind of forensic examination of clothing in order to figure out who was telling the truth and that the clothing evidence supported either before or after evidence tampering. It supported the story of Yosef and that's why he didn't execute Yosef. There's another version of the midrash. There's another midrash that also brings in the idea of forensic evidence. But this Midrash says that it was actually uh, a little more graphic. This Midrash says it actually had to do with bodily fluids or putative bodily fluids. It wasn't clothing that they were analyzing. It was bodily fluids. In the Targum Yonas and Benazil, the Targum Yushalmi, it's, it's an old, likely mistakenly ascribed to Yonas and Benazil, the Targum and Chumash, but it's, it's considered the Targum Yushalmi. It's an ancient Targum and Midrash. The, the, the Targum says that when she accused Yosef, she didn't just make an accusation. She actually went to substantial length to frame him for attempted rape. It says, She took the, the white of an egg, which resembles semen, resembles the, the fluid that you might see at a, at, a, at a site of a rape. She took that and she placed it on the couch, uh, and then she called people in and says, Look at, the, look at this, look at the Shechvazera. That, 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 that this person uh, caused here, look, look what's going on here, that, the, that, that, that this is the person that, uh, that, that, that Yosef, that he did this, he says, and this is my evidence, look at the couch. Later it says, it says when, 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 Potiphar, when Potiphar threw him in jail and did not kill him, so again, the, the Targum Yushalmi also acknowledges that the fact that he didn't kill him indicates that he didn't totally believe his wife, why not? So the Targum Yushalmi says... So again, the, the, the motif of the priests, the priests are the ones who are responsible for uh, saving Yosef from death. It says he consulted them, and they, they did a forensic analysis of the fluid. They were the ones who established that she was lying, that this was not Sheikh this was egg white. And therefore they threw him in jail, and they didn't kill him. In the in the Seichel Tov, he elaborates on the midrash. He says that she did. She framed him by putting Sheikh Vazera on the on the on the couch, and it says Yosef also that that Potiphar took him. It says they, they brought the priest to Bud Kubadavar. What was the test? How did they analyze the fluid? Very similar to the way you would do it today in a lab. They had a they had a they had a test they performed that enabled them scientifically to. To determine what this fluid was. Today we have we we add chemical agents in. We use heat. We, we use different tests to determine what are we looking at when we have some kind of unknown substance. That's what they did too. They they, they used the scientific method to establish 
what they were looking at. The priest said, here's the procedure. Simu gachela shal Place a burning coal, a flaming coal, on adjacent, on top of this, this, this substance. I don't know exactly how to translate these words. usually means to bubble or to to, to seethe, to, to froth. Nimuach is to melt. Nitzle means to be roasted. I'm not sure exactly. I can't describe exactly how to do this test. But basically, they applied heat. They, they, they applied heat to the sample. And they saw how it reacted to heat. And very much like a modern scientific test. We, we have different procedures, and then we know that different substances will behave, will look differently, will behave differently in, in different uh, physical conditions. So they were the ones who said, we have a test that can determine whether this is really Shekhva Zero or not. Sure enough, they performed the test. They saw that she was lying, that this was egg white and not Shekhva Zera. And therefore, once again, Patifar said, I know you're innocent. I know that she framed you. So therefore, but I have to jail you anyway. I'm not going to kill you, but I'm jailing you anyway because I don't, like the gracious rabbi says, I don't want to be ma'ari psolas with banai. I can't afford the scandal against my, my progeny. Therefore, he threw him in jail. Did this test, the, the idea that, that, that we can apply heat and we can determine whether something is shikva zero or loven beitza, this actually appears in the Bavli as well. In a, in a story that, that appears in the Agadita of the Chorban, that we often study on Tishabov. On Gittin, on Daphne and Zion, different stories about Yushalayim and other, other parts of Eretz Yisrael at the time of the Chorban. So the Mara brings a story. There was, a certain, there was once an incident where a certain person wanted to divorce his wife, but her ksuva was expensive, and he couldn't afford the ksuva. If he divorced her without cause, essentially, he'd have to pay the ksuva, and he couldn't afford it. He didn't want, he didn't want to pay it. So what did he do? He framed her for adultery. He made some kind of party, and he brought, in, he brought in friends, he made a party, got them drunk, and then when they were in a stupor, and they weren't, uh, they, they, they weren't aware of what was going on, apparently, he set them up, he, he placed them, he placed his wife with one of his friends together on a bed, and he brought Loven Beitza, and he, very, very much like Aishas Potiphar, it wasn't a question of rape here, but he brought, he brought Loven Beitza, the opposite of rape, he wanted to say she was guilty of adultery, so he brought Loven Beitza, he, he put it between them on the bed, and he said, uh, he brought witnesses, he took them to base, and he said, look, look what happened, I, I caught them, uh, I, I, I didn't catch them in the act, but I caught them in a compromising position with, with Shekhva Zerah on the bed, and he wanted to get, a, he wanted, if a, if a woman commits adultery, she forfeits her ksuva. So he wanted to convince Basin that he had the right to divorce her without the ksuva. So it says there was a zakin echad there, a talmud chacham, a talmid shame a zakin, a senior member of the, of the Beishamah, basically. And his name was Bava ben Buta. He said, I have a tradition, you know, some of our traditions are Torah, some of our traditions are in uh, forensics, or in uh, for- forensic technology. I have a forensic tradition. From Shameh Azakein, it's very similar to this Targum Yushalmi. Loven Beitza Soleid Minar. Egg white reacts by being Soleid Minar. Soleid means it contracts and hardens, they translate it. Shikhvazera Docha Minar. Semen is absorbed, it gets pushed into the sheet. So, again, I, I don't know exactly how to define these two behaviors, but very, again, very similar to, to the Targum Yushalmi, to, to the Sechel Tov's interpretation of the Talmud Yushalmi. That Shikhva Zera and Loven Beitza to the to, to, to simple visual observation might be indistinguishable, but I have a test we can do that will distinguish between them. So again, very much like the story in the Tagum Yushalmi and the Seichel Tov, Badku Matsukidvarov, indeed they corroborated, they they followed his test, they corroborated the 
they 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 exposed the man as a fraud, as uh, as, as uh, that, that he had framed her. They brought him to Bastion, behold coup, they gave him Malchus, and they made him pay the Ksuva. I guess the marriage, I don't know if it was safe, I don't know if it was salvageable at that point, but they made him pay the Ksuva, and they punished him for the for the for the outrage of doing this. So again, a very similar story to the one about Ashes Partifar that they used the they, they used forensics to establish who was telling the truth and who was lying. Sefer Yashur, I mentioned. Sefer Yashur was an old midrash. Some versions of it, one version of it, was had by some of the Rishonim. It's a rather sensational account of the stories in Bereshis. It's a great deal of drama and adventure and wars and so on. But the, the way he the way he tells the story there, it's not clear exactly when the version we have was composed. But but the way he tells the story there, they began to torture Yosef. They beat him uh, severely. Yosef cried out, "I'm innocent. It's, uh, I swear, I'm innocent. I swear by God." Um, and as they beat him, he cried out and he cried. And there was a certain Eved. First, it calls him an Eved. A little bit later, it says that he was a. Uh, a little bit later, it says he was a son, apparently. But anyway, there was a young boy there, and he was 11 years old. I'm sorry, Ben Ashtias or Chodesh, according to the text of the Midrash, he was only 11 months. He was really young, I guess. I'm not sure if this text is accurate here. And the kid, the Yiftak Hashem be a yell, maybe he was really only 11 months, but Hashem made him be able to talk, and he spoke up, and he said, that, uh, what are you doing to him? He's innocent, he says. Shekerimi Doveris. He said, he's my mother, I guess he was a son of Potiphar. My, 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 my mother's lying. But similar to the other Midrash, we said, said it was Asnas, who was the daughter, of, uh, the daughter of Potiphar, who eventually married Yosef. According to this version of the Midrash, it was a young boy who was their son, who said, my mother's lying, Yosef's telling the truth. This is what happened. Everyone was amazed by this, but the Potiphar was very embarrassed, and he said, okay, but I, I guess we're not going to kill Yosef from the mouth of babes. We're not going to kill Yosef, but uh, we are going to throw him in jail. All right, good. So, as we see, the, what seems to be a very simple story in the parsha of he said and she said is expanded upon by Midrashim, by Rishonim, to be, in, to be all, kinds of, uh, all kinds of questions on who to believe, that on the one hand, she had no proof, on the other hand, there, was, there might have been forensic evidence, either the garments or the, or, or ostensible bodily fluids. There may have been a, assessments based on Yosef's character, based on third-party testimony. As we said, you know, figuring out what happened when there's an accusation of rape is a very difficult question. We often don't, uh, we, 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 we often don't have real evidence, and this is a problem every legal system has, including halacha. What do we do? How do, how do, how do, how do we figure out what to do in a case of uh, in a case of in a case of uh, an accusation of rape, then that, that, that's not that's not entirely established. This has been a major political issue, a controversial issue in the last few decades. The, there's increasingly a movement over the years. I guess the pendulum swings back and forth. In earlier generations, women were not taken seriously, women were not believed, and men got away with uh, terrible things. Now the pendulum swung the other direction. There's a movement to always believe women. A lot of feminists insist you have to. You must always believe any woman who makes an accusation, otherwise you're going to re-traumatize her, and women have to be believed, survivors, and so on. And the pendulum, I think, has swung the other way. Certainly many conservatives feel that now women are automatically believed against men, even though they have no proof. They've actually tried to study what percentage of rapes, of rape accusations are actually false. Feminists like to claim that they're vanishingly small. Various academic studies have come up with numbers that between 2 and 8% or so, or 8 or 10% of rape accusations are false. The problem is that that statistic is very misleading because, as the conservatives point out, when they say that those are false, they mean those are provably false. Either the like, accuser recanted or, 
the, the prosecutors are decided that, they're, that they're clearly, uh, there's clearly no evidence for it, or that they, they don't think the case is, is serious. There are lots of other cases that end up as he said, she says, like Potiphar. Those are not called false because we never establish it as false, but they're also not necessarily true. So there, 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 there are a lot of cases that fall in this in-between area. There, there are a relatively small number of cases that are definitively established as false, but there's lots of other cases where we'll never know exactly what happened. So nobody really knows exactly, exactly. Wikipedia has an entire page on false accusations of rape with all kinds of attempts to, uh, to, to different ways of calculating and assessing how many are actually false. But there definitely are accusations, false accusations. The question is how many. So, so the question is, how does Halakha deal with this? As we mentioned earlier, rape in particular can be a very hard question to, uh, to figure out based on evidence because by the nature of the acts in question, they're commonly done without witnesses. And again, the question is twofold. If he denies it entirely, how do you prove it happened? Sometimes, again, you can have physical evidence and so on, but even if you do prove that it happened, that there was sexual contact between them, how do you prove that it was, that it was assault, that it was rape rather than consensual? So this question goes all the way back to the Rambam. It really goes back to Psukim. The Psukim are not so clear. The, the Torah, when it talks about rape, the Torah says that if you found her, that if you found her in an ear and it was, it was voluntary, then, then she's guilty of adultery if she's married and she's Chayabisa. You found her in the Sada and it was rape, then it was, uh, she's not guilty because it's not her fault. Lenar Lasasa Dover, that it's not her fault, she was raped and she's not Chayabisa. So what is all this reference to the ear and the sada, the, the field and the, the field and the city? Rambam explains as follows. Rambam says, onus. What is considered seduction? How do we classify something as seduction as opposed to onus, as opposed to rape? Mafuta is Lurzona. When the Torah uses the word mafuta, that means seduction, whether was when it was she consented. Onus is rape, Shabala Balkarcha. And then the Rambam explains the rule, gives the rule based on the Psukim. Anyone who Anyone, any, anyone who was involved in such an act in the Sada, she's becheskes anusa. She's presumed to have been raped, and we give her the din anusa, unless Adam tell us that, it, that, that, she, that she consented willingly. We presume that she cried out, and, uh, and, and the, the Pasuk says, We assume she cried out, and nobody could help her, and we assume she was raped. However, the Rambam says, If the episode occurred in the city, she's becheskes mefutem apneshelotzaka. Since she did not cry out, nobody heard her cry out, so, so we assume that she was Mefuta. We, we assume that she was willingly went along with it. Unless witnesses testify, she Anusa, that she was forced to not cry out. He has a knife, he says, if you say anything, I'll kill you. In that case, she's an Anusa, for not, even though she didn't cry out, but otherwise, there's a presumption that she is that she's guilty. Why, why can't she be Neman without Adam to say he pulled out her knife? I don't know. But if she doesn't have Adam, apparently, who'll say the, the fellow pulled a knife on her and told her to be quiet, then we say, why didn't you cry out? And the fact that she didn't cry out, that yields a presumption of guilt. Ravid doesn't understand the Rambam, but this is how the Mission explains the Rambam, based on the Migdalos, that if the Adam saw from far away that they saw the sexual activity occur, they couldn't tell if she was consenting or not. So if she's in a city, there's a presumption she's Mufuta. If she didn't cry out, then the Adam didn't say that he pulled a knife on her. But if he's beside the assumption is she did cry out. And that's the sheet to the Rambam. So, so the Rambam is saying that the fact of her not crying out, that's sufficient grounds for presuming her, uh, uh, presuming consent. This is the context of the criminal, of, of, the, of, of, the, of the criminal charge of adultery. 
that the, the, the issue is not uh, her, her claim against him for rape. The issue is being able to convict her of adultery. We have to know if she was raped, in which case she's patura, or whether she consented, in which case she's guilty of adultery. So the Rambam says, based on the Pesukim, the rule is that, that if she didn't cry out, there's a presumption that she is guilty and that, 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 that she was consenting. He's guilty also, but she's guilty and we can execute her for adultery. This would seem to go against modern science. Modern science believes, some of it is politics, I guess, but there is actual science, apparently, which says that we cannot assume that a woman is, has consented simply because she didn't cry out. They talk about something called tonic immobility, that is some kind of psychological, uh, but real, very real reaction to stress, to other kinds of stress, soldiers in battle, people, when they, people who are victims of rape, that they can literally lose control of themselves and become paralyzed, unable to cry out, unable to fight back. They did a study, again, I, I don't know the quality of these studies, and politics always gets in here, but they did a study of, um, of, the, of survivors of rape who, were, who visited the clinic in Stockholm, the emergency clinic for rape victims in Stockholm. So they, they did a study in which they said that, uh, they, they, they reported, they, they, they published a study that said of nearly 300 women, 70% experienced at least significant tonic immobility, and 48% met the criteria for extreme tonic immobility. It's, again, this is based on self-assessment, and it, we, there's no way to measure that this was genuine paralysis or they're just justifying themselves after the fact for not crying out. Apparently this is based on self-reporting, but science apparently believes that there is a, a, a genuine condition that, that renders a person unable to, uh, unable to, to, to respond. They bring, they bring other stories. They, they, they say it happens in other contexts as well. They say that uh, they, they, they say they say that this happens with uh, they, they say that they, they say apparently it happens with soldiers as well. They say that they say that uh, that, 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 that soldiers on the battlefield sometimes experience some, something like this. They say in animals apparently it's well it's uh, it's better understood. They say it has been observed in, sol- in soldiers in battle and in uh, and police and in traumatic situations. They sometimes freeze and they, uh, they. Unfortunately, the researchers say that the judicial legal systems don't really understand this, and they typically consider it prejudicial against her claim of rape if she didn't cry out. But uh, more and more, the the culture is coming to accept this this defense. Is this against halacha? Do we have to? Would we have to ignore this in favor of halacha? I don't know. Perhaps there's some way to reconcile the Rambam's claim with the assumptions of modern science. Perhaps not. I don't know. I'll call upon him. This is this is the Rambam who says that a woman can be presumed guilty of rape if she doesn't cry out unless she can prove that he that he threatened her life that, that he that, that he forced her to be quiet by threatening her life. We'll close with one final tshuva. The, the classic discussion of, of rape in halacha is a tshuva of the marik. Now we should point out that unlike in modern law, halacha doesn't really have a category of rape per se, a rape as a crime. There is, there is a parish in the Torah, the parish of Onis, that if a man is ma'ane, say, basula, nara marasa, a basula, a basula is not marasa, a single basula, he has to pay a special knas of 50 shekel, but that, that, that's really the one, the one criminal concept of rape in the Torah. It's really a civil thing. He, the, the punishment is he has to pay her 50 shekel to the father or father, and he has to marry her. But there's no criminal punishment. There's no malchus and misa for it. And, that, and that's a very, very narrow situation. It only applies to a nara, who's a woman in a very narrow window of age. 
in general, if, if an adult man rapes an adult woman, there is no, there is no criminal, there's no crime in the Torah. There's no criminal punishment. He's guilty of assault. He has to pay the, he has to pay the, the, the chiyuvim that any, that any, that any uh, perpetrator of assault pays. Tsar, Nezek, Shevez, Boshes, Ripoy. He pays, he pays all the, all the different types of things that are applicable that, that any assailant pays. But there's no particular crime of rape. There's no criminal punishment and there's no, uh, and there's not, and there's not really much, even civilly, beyond the regular, the regular civil categories of assault. So the Marik's tshuva, so what's the Marik's tshuva about? The Marik was asked about. So again, rape in the Torah is largely a defense. Like the case of the Rambam was a defense. A defense against adultery was rape. But uh, rape as a crime doesn't really play, doesn't really have much, much space in halacha. So what's the Marik talking about? The Marik was talking about the she sued civilly. There, a, a woman accused a man of rape. She said that she had uh, she had fainted, she had passed out, and that he had uh, forced himself upon her when she was incapable of giving consent, as we say today, when she was passed out. So what is she asking for? She's asking for civil damages, boshto pogma, humiliation for the for the assault, pogma. The, the pagam is a kind of nezek. It's how much she's considered to be less in value as a, now that now that she's the the victim of sexual assault. Uh, today we tell you that you're not worth less in value, but society does value people as, as, as worth less once they've been raped. So she said, he raped me, and therefore I have civil claims for damages against him. Later in the tshuva, I think she also wanted to force him to marry her. But the, he denied the whole thing. He said it never happened. I, 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 you're making this up. I, I, never, I never touched you. I never did this to you. So... The Marek basically discusses two questions. First of all, he denies the whole thing, so does her claim have any credibility? Second, he says, even if he would admit the story, even if he would admit that, they, that he had been with her, but he says, let's say he would say that it was consensual, and she denies it. Then, then, then what's the halach? Says the Marek, it's pashut, it's self-evident that her claim has no validity. If he denies the whole thing, he says, certainly if he denies the whole thing, even if he admits that it occurred, but he says it was consensual, he says pshita, that he's believed, he says. Klal gadol badin, the burden of proof is on the plaintiff, is on the claimant. Hamot mechmer, of haraya. She's the one who wants to compel him to pay her, to take action uh, that she wants. The burden of proof is on her, he says. She's making an unsubstantiated claim. Why on earth should we believe her? Like, do we show him to the Potiphar? Why should we believe Aisha Potiphar? She has no proof. There, at least, they jailed him, but the Marik is saying in halacha, there are no consequences. How can we? How can we force him to do anything? The burden of proof is, uh, is to prove that that, that that he did this. That he did this thing. What's the shaila? He says. Furthermore, in his case, he says whatever circumstantial evidence there was, if anything pointed toward consensual activity rather than uh, rather than rape, he says. Even if you want to point to the circumstantial evidence as being valid, he says, it still wouldn't support a charge of rape. He goes on and on. He brings the Rambam that, that the Rambam says. The Rambam says anyone anyone who whether was whether was sexual activity in a City, we assume it was consensual, unless we know otherwise. If she didn't cry out, we assume it was consensual. He says. So, so why on earth would you would, would you assume that she? Should, why would anybody assume that she should be believed to make an unsubstantiated claim of of uh, involuntary sexual activity, uh, and so on and so on? The rabbit says even in the field, much more variety. Certainly in the case of the air. And again, the Marik brings all kinds of other arguments in his case, but he says, He says, I didn't even bother to develop this point. And I could have gone on for longer, he says. But it's, it's, it's something that's so obvious, he says, that, uh, that without all these other details of his case, on the, on the basic, fun, most fundamental level, he says, 
There's no way to, uh, to hold the accused liable since he denies the whole thing. He says, He simply denies it. She has no evidence. So it's Pashat, he says, that, that we have, that there's no reason to believe her claim. Now, and this is basically the normative halacha. There is some discussion in contemporary post in the context of abusers, child abusers. They discuss reporting them to the authorities. And the question is, what if we have no proof? What if we just have suspicions and so on? So, so the, there are post who argue that even if we don't have evidence that would necessarily be enough to, to, hold, him, to hold him guilty, liable in a, court, in, in a basin, it's still enough as a precaution, like we say in Hilchus Lashonara all the time, that you can't be makabel, but lachash miyabai, as long as this person, as long, if we're just trying to go after him for damages in the past, you have to have proof, and you can't, you can't, be, you can't force somebody to pay without damages. But if, the goal of, if our goal is to simply prevent him from being a threat to, to, to people in an ongoing way, then he says, again, we're not trying to find him guilty in the standards of criminal law, if halakha criminal law. We're simply trying to take defensive measures, protective measures, to stop him from hurting other people. So that, he said, we don't, we don't have the same standards of, of absolute proof. Zaman Nechemia Goldberg has a long discussion of this where he says that, again, even though, even though there's an elaborate discussion, Marik talks about this, Marik, one of the most fundamental points that Marik makes is that halacha requires hard testimony, witnesses, and not simply circumstantial evidence, not umdana. We, we, we can't convict, even Dini Mamanus, we, we can't hold somebody liable based on umdana. And Dominic Hamid says, yeah, that, that, that's, when you're, uh, that, that, that's when the goal is to find him chayav midin. If the goal is simply to turn him over to the court to stop him as a, as a way of, uh, of, of, of protecting people in the future, he says, you can follow umdana for that. Rav Dominic says, though, something that the, the feminists and the progressives don't like, he says, you should have a screening panel before you report to him to the authorities. You should have a panel of Rabbanim of Hakim, who are Biki, who are familiar with this type of, with, with this area, he says, and they should, they should rule whether a certain threshold of, of suspicion has been met in order to turn him over to the authorities, he says. And also, sometimes you don't have to turn him over. Sometimes there are other methods you can use of of ensuring that he won't continue to be a threat, that I think is somewhat um, dubious, that, that there's any really effective method you can use to stop somebody who's guilty of predation from, from hurting others, he says. Okay, but I'll call upon Rav he says, in principle, we don't need the same level of, that, that you need in terms of evidence, of proof to hold him liable. We don't need that level to turn over to the authorities, but you, still, you should still have rabbinic oversight to make sure that some basic standard has been met. Similarly, Rav Asher Weiss, Rav Asher Weiss also talks about the question of turning someone into the authorities. He brings the discussions about Umdana and so on. He says, but the, because of Tikkun Olam, we find the, the Rishonim explain that, 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 that the government has the right to prosecute criminals, even if the, 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 the objective halakhic standards of guilt and innocence haven't been met, but as, as, a, as a means to, to cause society to function effectively, to maintain deterrence of, of crime, the, the government does have the right to punish people. You know, Shaloka Din without the evidence required by the Torah. And, and Rav Ashwais also therefore says that Kalvachamer, that if there's a strong suspicion, we can turn somebody over to the authorities. He says, however, he says, we do have to at least uh, conduct our own investigation as much as we can to see whether it looks like he's actually guilty. He says, not just uh, run after every rumor, he says, and every, uh, every, every slander that we hear that says someone's guilty, he says. That uh, he says people are choshev b'kshirim. However, if based in or some other rabbinic panel, a panel of chatzel thinks that there is indeed 
there is indeed a problem here that the fellow has done uh, terrible things. Even if there are no Eidim Kshayim, even if we don't have evidence that would hold up in a court of law, still that's enough, he says, to, uh, based on all these precedents he brings, that because of Tikkun Olam, because of the need to, to preserve order in society, that the government has the right to, to, to establish a criminal justice system that does not require the same level of evidence required by the Torah. So the bottom line is when that formal halacha treats rape the way it treats any cl- the way it treats any other case, where just like classic classic Western law says the, there's a presumption of innocence and the burden of proof is on the plaintiff, more and more modern law still recognizes in general that the burden of proof is on the plaintiff that innocent until proven guilty. But when it comes to rape, though, because of the pressure of the feminists, the, the pendulum has swung more and more. There's much less of a presumption of guilt, uh, of a presumption of innocence, that, that, that cer- even in some contexts, even certain protections that the accused normally has are taken away, the right to confront an accuser and so on. Certainly in non-legal proceedings, in, in, in the, the college proceedings, they have all kinds of procedures where the conservatives complain bitterly that people can have their, their university careers destroyed because of claims without due process, and he has no right to see the evidence against him, no right to even uh, to, inter- to cross-examine the, the accusers and the witnesses. But, but in general, the halacha has no such concept. Halacha generally fails on the one hand, mi'ikra din, halacha fails that the, the burden of proof in a, case, in a charge of rape, a civil charge of rape, whatever it is, there isn't a real criminal charge of rape, is the same as in any other case where, where, the, where the burden of proof is on the claimant, is on the accuser. However, when it comes to stopping someone who's an ongoing threat, like in cases of sexual abuse, there are posts who say that either, either as a protective measure or as a prerogative of the government to maintain order, that, 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 we do, that we do have the right to turn people over to the government for, to get them off the streets, even if the government is acting based on evidence that would not be sufficient in a court of law. And based in, that's the prerogative of the government, and that's our right and duty as well to get people off the streets to save, to save them from, to save their, their future victims. A few years ago, when we, about five years ago, when we discussed Pashas Vayeshev, I mentioned one other approach for believing accusers in cases of sexual abuse. I had a very speculative approach that we do find in halacha, it's, we're not going to get into this in detail now, but we do find in halacha the idea, a, a very pragmatic doctrine in halacha, that in certain types of cases, where by the nature of the case, it's very hard to bring kosher witnesses. For example, they had arguments about the, the rights to seats in the, in the women's section in the, in, in the basic Knesset. So seats were treated as property back then, as actual property that you owned and sold and so on. When there were arguments about who had, who had the right to a certain seat in the women's section, because there weren't usually men in the women's section, it was very hard to find kosher witnesses. So we find, we showed them, say, at Takana, that they believed women. And we find post in certain contexts have, have, have worked with this Takana, that in, in scenarios where by the very nature of the scenario it's going to be, it's going to be generally difficult to find valid evidence, in Pratikana Olam they agreed to accept, they, they, they were misakin to accept even less than kosher evidence. One could theoretically argue that since rape in general is something where by now again we have DNA evidence and we have modern forensics, it's a little bit easier to prove things sometimes, not always to prove intent, but at least, at least to prove that the actual sexual contact occurred. Sometimes you can even find circumstantial evidence of, uh, of, of consent based on uh, you know, bruising and scarring and you know, other types of trauma. But certainly in the time that you often don't even have that type of uh, evidence, one, I propose that perhaps one can, one can come up with a similar doctrine, the Pnetikin Olam, 
they, 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 they may have, uh, it'd be possible for halacha to grant some extra credibility to women. That's a great chiddush. Those other cases, they granted credibility to other third parties who happen to not be uh, male, women, to actually just believe the accuser without any evidence still seems like, uh, like tremendously unfair, tremendously unfair to the, to, the, to the victims, to the accused. So, again, the, 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 the central maramakum here is the marik, who says that it's, it's, it's self-evident, it's poshit it could be used to the kudcha, you can't simply believe an unsubstantiated accusation that's denied by the accused. Unless, as we said, unless, unless there are government laws involved, uh, like in the cases of the child abuse, because of tikkun olam, the, the need, the prerogative of the government in, to, uh, to enforce order, or, 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 or as, uh, as a defensive measure to get somebody who's believed to be... Uh, an ongoing threat off the streets, they're, they're the post are willing to say that we can get somebody in trouble even in the absence of, again, we're not going to convict them in Basin, but we can at least take action to involve the authorities to eliminate a threat and to assist the government in its, in its, uh, in, in its, in its duty and, and prerogative of the preservation of, of public order.